you're doing holiday shopping and you have somebody on your list who's a music fan and a reader, Dr. Steve Waxman, professor of music and American studies at Smith College, has a brand new book out, Live Music in America, a history from Jenny Lynn to Beyonce. It is a 600-page plus book chronicling the history of live music in this country. It's fascinating on so many levels. What I love about it is it talks about how concerts start to take over the imagination of a corporate joy that maybe other perhaps religious um, Mm. aspects of life start to diminish. There's talk in it about the threat that recorded music is perceived to have Mm -hmm. in regards to live music, about high culture and low culture in what settings. Some of these conversations, which we're still kind of having, you know, today, does Metallica belong in Symphony Hall in Boston? Sometimes, but it's still not the regular thing you'll see. And race is a huge part of it, too, talking about how black-faced minstrelsy, the second chapter is essentially all about a band trying to break, a group, a vocal group trying to break free from the constraints that black performers were having in this mm-hmm. country. Yes, that's having to do with the Fisk Jubilee Singers, who were a really crucial performance troupe from the 1870s. It was an all-black singing group from Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, and that's a really significant historically black college now but was basically started right around that time. And the Jubilee Singers were created by kind of an administrator at the, at the university who was also the choir master. And he saw that music was like a significant part of the education that freed black people should have. All but two of the original Fist Jubilee Singers had been slaves and then had been freed from slavery. So they had that experience. The music that they sang was largely comprised of what we would today call spirituals. And they were really the first group of singers that sang spirituals very broadly to a large public audience. And they started touring in the U.S. starting in 1871. And absolutely one of the main hurdles that they had to overcome was that in that time period, there were not very many opportunities for black professional artists at all most of what would have been considered quote-unquote black music at that time would have been promoted through the minstrel stage. And the minstrel stage was a venue within which most so-called black music would have been performed by white performers in blackface, which was still pretty customary in the 1870s. Or sometimes black performers in blackface. And that's even more complicated, yes. So when black performers start to get more professional opportunities after the Civil War, one of the main areas open to them is basically going into minstrelsy, where they do in fact have to black up. You know, the sheer fact that they're black does not count in this context where being black isn't just a matter of a basic statement of identity, but where it's about conforming to a certain set of stereotypes that have been invested with entertainment value. The Jubilee Singers were not at all trying to reproduce that image. They were devoted Christians. They were singing spirituals because they were songs that were representative of their own religious faith. They were very much trying to promote a more respectable image of African-American identity at the time. But that was not something that most audiences had experience with. And, you know, it wasn't something that was especially easy to promote. They were remarkably successful given 
how much they had to overcome in order to gain the kind of hearing that they did. I mean, they ultimately toured not just around the U.S., but they went to England. They went to other parts of Europe. They like performed for Queen Victoria. They performed for President Grant. They made it about as high as you could go. And as they did so, they really opened a lot of doors for black performers to have opportunities that were not limited to the minstrel stage. But it's not like it, that all disappeared in one fell swoop, because even by the time you get to the 1890s and early 1900s, you've still got black performers in blackface. So the Fist Jubilee Singers made a really significant step towards carving out a space where black performers could appear as something closer to themselves. But there was still a lot of work to do at that point. Dr. Steve Waxman, the professor of music and American studies at Smith College. This is a tome about music and it's American studies, <laughs> but it's so engaging. I mean, like you start to read it. I was going through the Alan Freed part of it and, you know, things I had never thought about about Alan Freed where other black DJs are saying, if this guy gets syndicated, he's going to he's going to push out all the black DJs that are creating their own culture. You know, Alan Freed, I often think of as some sort of like, oh, hero. And like he brought rock and roll to the airwaves in some ways. And then he got really involved in the local music scene and started to make produce concerts and stuff. There's another side of that in there, but get the book at Broadside right now today. Make a perfect holiday gift for a reader and music lover on your list. Thank you, Dr. Brock. Thank you, Monty.